How do you take down a criminal network hidden in the shadows? I tell them that I know that they're the ones who are running the largest child abuse website on the darknet. The journalists working to expose the darkest corners of the internet. That's your playroom floor. That's your baby's clothes. That's my house. The police who hunt down online predators. Did we create the environment that they're using? No, we didn't. We didn't make it. They made it. Hunting Warhead. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Lou, the host of Love Me, a CBC podcast about the messiness of human connection. Our brand new season is available now, featuring deeply personal stories, like a man who learns all about love while imprisoned at Guantanamo Bay. Two brothers stuck sharing a room again as adults. And a note slipped into the back pocket of someone's jeans that leads to a surprising late-night encounter. Subscribe at cbc.ca slash loveme or wherever you get your podcasts. And listen to season three, available now. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. This is White Coat Black Art, the show about medicine from all sides of the gurney. My name is Carla. I am 42 years old and I have been PAP compliant my whole adult life. In March 2018, I was diagnosed with stage 4A cervical cancer. You get lots of emails. There was one sent to us last October that stood out. It's from a woman you're about to meet from London, Ontario, named Carla Van Kessel. What I thought was a false negative pap test was actually an alarming result in which the pathology report recommended I go for biopsy. Yet this referral did not happen. Carla Van Kessel is a smart, articulate, and health-conscious woman who runs the libraries for a college in London and also runs kilometres to stay in shape. And here she is with stage 4A cervix cancer, the fourth most common cancer in women, one that experts say is the most preventable and treatable kind of cancer through regular screening. Carla is on a campaign to warn women and their doctors of the symptoms of cervix cancer, And she wants the provinces to change how they screen it. Cervical cancer is very preventable and treatable in early stages. My hope is that through education and awareness, my devastating diagnosis will not happen to any other women. And Carla is in a hurry, in part because she's not sure she'll make it to 45. She spoke with me from our studio in London. Carla Van Kessel, welcome to White Coat Black Art. Thank you, Brian. I'm glad to be here. Uh, I'm glad to be speaking to you too, Carla. What did you think or know about cervical cancer before your symptoms started? My understanding uh, was that the pap smear would ultimately catch anything, and cervical cancer is completely preventable if you complied. And I take it you complied? Absolutely. So uh, when did you start getting symptoms? I noticed irregular intermittent bleeding in between my cycle. Uh, I started having painful and uncomfortable intercourse. And eventually it turned into pain that came from my low back to my hips and radiated down both of my legs. At what point did you see your doctor? I saw my doctor right away, um, especially with the intermittent bleeding, um, with the painful intercourse. These were just really unusual things for me. Did she do any other testing like ultrasounds? 
Um, we did do a, a pelvic ultrasound and it, it came back fine. Did she actually examine you? No. She didn't examine you? No examination, no. What did you think of that? I guess I just trusted that everything was okay. I, I had had her as a GP for over a decade and she knew me to be fit and healthy. So uh, at some point she, uh, uh, she suggested she could send you to a gynecologist. You said yes. So what was happening to you during those months? Uh, I was having a really hard time. I, my life was amazing. I, a mother of two amazing kids in an amazingly supportive, loving relationship. I had a really rewarding and successful career. Ultimately, I was at the prime of my life. I had it all, but I was in so much pain that it was difficult. Every day was a struggle. I was constantly taking Advil and Tylenol around the clock just to get through my days. And I think at some point I did slip into a depression because it it was horrible. I, I was in so much pain. I was paying thousands of dollars just trying to figure out what this pain was about. And it was, it was confusing. And all of this while you were basically while you were waiting to see the gynecologist? Yes. And when did you see the gynecologist? I eventually saw the gynecologist in July of 2017. Three years had passed and it was time for me to uh, get my routine pap smear. I went to my GP, got a pap smear in July of 2017. Two weeks later, I saw the gynecologist. And in the intake forms, it says, when was your last pap smear and what were the results? On that intake form, I said, um, it was two weeks ago and I don't know the results. So when you saw the gynecologist at that appointment you'd waited six months or so for, you just happened to have had this more recent pap smear done. What did the gynecologist say about that pap smear? So she looked at my form and she said, so you had a pap smear two weeks ago? And I said, yes, I did. And she said, so have you heard anything? And I said, no. So she said, so it was normal. And I said, well, no, I don't know that it was normal because I I haven't actually received the results. Um, And then I later learned that in her clinic notes, she had reported that my pap smear was normal. Without knowing? Without knowing. So you eventually got the PAP result? So I, I got an email from my GP and the email said, I got the results of your PAP smear and it was ASCUS, um, atypical squamous cells of undetermined significance. Forgive me for getting technical here, but it's part of Carla's story. A PAP smear that comes back with a report that says ASCUS, A-C-S-U-S, which stands for atypical squamous cells of undetermined significance, means some cells look abnormal but are nothing to worry about. And she said, you know, this just means you have a few funny cells. It's truly no big deal. What we will do is retest in six months. Don't worry about it. I take it that you found out at another time that the GP was wrong about the finding. That's right. What did you find out? So the following year after I had been diagnosed, I found out that uh, after looking at my medical records that actually my result wasn't Ask Us, it was Ask H. It turns out that distinction was critical to Carla's misdiagnosis. If the report says Ask H, 
A-S-C-H. That means there are atypical squamous cells that look abnormal and could be a high-grade form of cancer. Carla says she continued to have pain and abnormal bleeding through the fall of 2017. In October, the gynecologist saw her a second time and told her she had musculoskeletal pain, perhaps caused by running. A repeat pap smear in January 2018 showed unusual cells. Even then, it took another month to see a gynecologist who did a colposcopy. It's a procedure that uses a lighted magnifying instrument that allows a much more detailed look at the cervix and to get a biopsy. So what happened next? So I went in for the cervical biopsy about a month later in uh, February of 2018. And while they were doing the biopsy, one of the physicians said to me, you know, are you feeling well otherwise? And I said, well, actually, no, I've got all of these symptoms. And I, I listed them for him. And his eyes, his eyes widened and his jaw dropped. And he just said, I think we're going to schedule you to see an oncologist tomorrow. I said, okay, this is serious. I, I, I must have cervical cancer. There was no doubt in your mind? No doubt. So you got those words from a gynecologist who did the biopsy and whose jaw dropped and eyes widened. How were mm-hmm. you, you feeling the rest of that day? I was feeling really disappointed, um, really, really sad. At that time, I had no idea the severity. So I thought maybe I just need a hysterectomy and I'll be fine. But, you know, in the back of my mind, having researched this for so many months, I knew that it was probably not fine. Yeah, my world, my world stopped. And at that time, too, I felt this this horrible yet satisfying feeling of vindication because I knew all along and and it was an awful feeling, but I knew all along and nobody was listening. What happened next? Next, I had the scans. By that point, I had blood in my urine um, and that again was horrifying. The scan showed that I had a mass about four centimeters by five centimeters that was obliterating my cervix up into my uterus and that it had spread to my bladder wall and two para-aortic lymph nodes. And what did the oncologist say at that visit? The oncologist explained that I had stage 4A cervix cancer and that we would need to start treatment right away. Carla underwent five weeks of treatment, weekly chemo sessions, daily radiation treatments, and brachytherapy, a kind of internal radiation treatment. It was a horrible time. I lost 15 pounds, which for someone who's of slight build was was a lot. Um, I couldn't eat. I had trouble sleeping. I was going through early menopause, so I had severe night sweats severe nausea. You are bright and inquisitive and you ask lots of questions and you wonder, you try to connect the dots. I'm wondering, when you were meeting with the oncologist and the oncologist was laying out this uh, treatment course and and talking about having stage four uh, cervical cancer, uh, did you ask the oncologist questions about how you came to have stage four uh, 
cervical cancer uh, that had been missed for so long? Yeah, absolutely. I said, how how could this happen? I've been screened my whole life, and here I am in your office with stage four. And they just kind of looked at me and said, yeah, this, this happens. And I said, what do you mean this happens? Who who knows that this happens? Women don't know. Do GPs know? I, I had no idea. It was, a, it was a feeling of complete shock. I was still failed. But you wanted to find out more about how that could have happened. And I gather you have a family friend who is a cancer specialist? I had a lot of physician friends who were really interested in my story. And um, one friend in particular, uh, she was also really surprised to hear that, you know, pap smears can be wrong and pap smears um, don't always tell us what we need to know. I granted her access to my medical records. What did she tell you? So uh, I will never forget the moment. I It was a really warm June night. I had just finished my first round of chemo radiation. Uh, I was starting to feel better. I was at my oldest son's uh, soccer game and I get a call from her and she said, uh, Carla, I, I really don't know how to tell you this, uh, but I, I really need to let you know when I was looking over your records, your, your pap smear in July of 2017, it, it wasn't ASCUS, it was ASCH. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, you were supposed to go for biopsy and you weren't referred. And I just, I hung up the phone and on the soccer field, I cried. Hmm. Must have been awful too to find that out in that way so long after the fact. It was, absolutely, because had I been referred, my prognosis would have been much better. Carla complained to the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario about her family doctor and the first gynecologist who saw her. The college reprimanded the GP but found the gynecologist had acted appropriately. She now sees a different family doctor. Carla has turned her attention to educating doctors to screen women more thoroughly and to not be complacent about cervix cancer. You've also said that there are other assumptions and oversights that are part of a larger problem when it comes to cervical cancer. Can you talk about that? Despite the fact that, yes, uh, there were errors made in my case and I should have been referred, along the way, I discovered that pap smears are often wrong and, and I really want women to be aware of that. But I also think healthcare practitioners need to be aware too. If there are symptoms in a woman, that uh, cervical cancer should not be uh, put off the table just because of a clear pap. That speaks to the difference between making a mm-hmm. diagnosis of cervical cancer and screening a woman for cervical cancer. They're two different things, aren't they? Absolutely, they are. And right now, I don't think women or physicians really understand that. What you're saying is that you came into the GP's office in January of 2017 with symptoms of cervical cancer, and the GP was relying on screening tests. Uh, to rule out cervical cancer without actually entertaining the possibility that you might actually have cervical cancer. That's right. It was a huge over-reliance on the test. You also believe that uh, testing for human papillomavirus, HPV, could have played a role in, in helping make a diagnosis faster. 
For sure. So in HPV positive women, um, there is more of a chance of, of cervical cancer being a possibility. And there are other models uh, across the world where HPV is part of pap testing. It's called co-testing. And this is just another way to screen women more thoroughly. Do you think it could have made a difference in your case? I'll never know that for sure, but I do believe that it's what we need to do uh, as a province and as a nation. I truly believe that this will help other women in the future. I think you've also said that women and men, for that matter, need to be able to look at their own health records. Absolutely. I I joke with my husband that our eight-year-old son would have known what to do because the pathologist report said very clearly that I was supposed to go for a biopsy. I got a letter, which all women get from Cancer Care Ontario, that basically said, you know, the results of your test uh, were mildly abnormal. This doesn't mean you have cancer. So rather than say that my pap was mildly abnormal, had it actually named it, that would have been immensely helpful just takes us back to the adage that an informed patient is an engaged patient. I want to thank you for for speaking with us and telling your story and uh, I hope things go well for you. Thank you, Brian. You're listening to White Coat Black Art. This week, the story of a 42-year-old woman named Carla Van Kessel who was diagnosed with stage 4A cervical cancer despite being health-conscious and diligent about pap smears. Dr. Joan Murphy is a gynecologist who runs Cancer Care Ontario's cervical screening program. We spoke in our Toronto studio. Dr. Joan Murphy, welcome to White Coat Black Art. Thank you, Brian. So how does it happen that a 42-year-old woman with irregular bleeding, hip and back pain, painful intercourse um, has her cervical cancer missed? There are lots of opportunities for failure. The biggest one is getting women to participate in screening. Uh, And I know that the woman that has brought her story to this uh, situation uh, did participate. So that's not the issue here. We know that some screening tests have what we call false negative results. That means they are read as normal when they may or may not be. Um, And I think the other thing to say in this particular instance is that the Other symptoms, the abnormal bleeding, is very common and very rarely is it due to cervix cancer. That's no excuse, but it is a reality. The pain that is described in this case, um, again, could be many things, most of which are not cervix cancer. Uh, Being dedicated to cervical screening for many years, I know that every woman who has a cervix and has ever been sexually active is at risk of having cervix cancer. So it's high on my radar, but it's probably not high on the radar of a family doc who has to do such a broad scope of work, uh, and or even gynecologists or young clinicians who haven't seen much cervix cancer in their career. We are given to understand from Carla that her, her GP, at least initially ordered an ultrasound and didn't examine the cervix. That's a common story, isn't it, these days, that that ultrasounds are kind of replacing uh, internal examinations? In some ways, they are, or they're accompanying internal examinations. But I think you're quite right. In some clinicians' uh, profile, they replace the internal examination. I think that's for a number of reasons. But that's not right. That shouldn't happen. 
In this case, it sounded like she sounds to me in retrospect like she needed an internal examination. Yes. All having said that, an ultrasound will often find a cervix cancer. Not always, and it's not the best test. So they work in concert with each other. One was not intended to replace the other. I think one ought not to replace the other. When should pap smears not be relied on? Always in the situation where a woman has suspicious symptoms or signs. And so like, women listening to us and, and their partners, people who care about them, should understand that a woman could have a normal pap smear last year and have a cancer today? It's rare, but it can happen, yes. I mean, we, we think of the women who have cervical cancer that... 30, 40, 50 percent of those women have been screened. But we also need to think of the number of women women who were protected from cervix cancer because of their screening. We don't want that to get lost in in the discussion. Dr. Murphy says it's important to continue screening with pap smears because they save lives through early detection of cervix cancers. Still, she and others admit that the test has its limits. The reality is, if a cervix is looking abnormal or if the patient has symptoms that could be arising from cervix cancer, a pap smear is notoriously unreliable. So we actually have a caveat on our reports um, that we recommend go uh, be on the reports. In the presence of an abnormal appearing cervix, a negative pap smear should not be relied upon. When we talked, Carla Van Kessel told me she thinks Ontario and other provinces should test women for human papillomavirus, or HPV, as part of cervical cancer screening. That's because nearly all cases of cervix cancer are caused by one strain or another of HPV. If you test positive for HPV, you're at risk of getting cervix cancer. But if you test negative, you aren't at risk. It's something I wanted to ask Dr. Murphy about. Carla, when she spoke to us, certainly believed that uh, HPV testing, testing for whether or not she'd been infected with uh, certain strains of HPV might have made a difference in her case. Can you, can you say anything about that? Yes, I can. We're very interested in HPV testing across this country, actually, uh, and many cervical screening programs are moving forward to implement HPV testing. Other countries have already adopted that. Some other countries have. Uh, For instance, Australia has really uh, gone out in front of everybody else and is really um, demonstrating how to do it. In addition to Australia, the United Kingdom is also switching to HPV screening. That country just completed a pilot project. Sophia Lowe's is a health information manager at Cancer Research UK. She spoke to us from London. And they screened over 400,000 women using the high-risk HPV testing, and they found that it was 40% more sensitive for those precancerous changes. So it's got increased detection of these abnormalities. It's a kind of better preventative test. Those results certainly seem promising. And Dr. Joan Murphy told me that, in fact, some provinces are working towards similar programs. We are working on implementation in Ontario, and I know some other provinces are too. We know that Ontario is in the midst of some major health care reforms. I don't want to put you on the spot on that, but I do, I do want to ask you, what is Cancer Care Ontario's position on HPV testing? Well, in May 2017, the government in their budget announced that they would fund the implementation of HPV testing uh, as the primary screen test uh, for cervix screening. And so 
we are working very closely with the ministry to move forward and implement that. I think we've also heard in this, in Carla's instance, uh, a misinterpretation of the finding. And and it sounded like it was relying on, on letters where one letter in the in the result of the pap smear was enough to, to mislead the physician to think that this was a benign finding when in fact, well, it also said, as Carla found out, it also said it should have a colposcopy. We're not trying to scare clinicians or the public, but keeping this high on people's radar because it isn't a disease that's gone away yet is really important. I had a very sentinel event very early in my cancer training, looking at a, a, a cervix one, a woman presented with abnormal bleeding, and I didn't recognize it as cervix cancer because I hadn't seen it uh, and before. you're a specialist. And I'm a specialist. So just think of all those primary care docs, people who are seeing the broad spectrum of healthcare who've probably seen much less. That was a very jarring event in my training and mm. my, my professional development. And it was caught very quickly, by the way, just so the, the lady didn't suffer. It was an event that's really shaped my, uh, my uh, career in some ways. And I, would, I dare say that a lot of the people who will be listening to this show, to Carla, to you, uh, will be women who wonder what they should do if they're meeting up with the kind of complacency that we've talked about. <laughs> Uh, again, I do believe very strongly in HPV. So if things are not fitting together and they've had a good clinical assessment and they've had a, a pap smear, HPV testing is available on a patient pay basis across the country. So they would have to pay for it, though? Unfortunately, at the moment... How much does it cost? It's about $100. Now, it's a lot of money. It's a fair bit of money, and it's covered by some people who have third-party insurance. We are working very hard to have it available as part of an insured service program uh, in Ontario, uh, and there are other jurisdictions across Canada working at this too. And if she's having symptoms and that HPV testing is positive, then she goes on to a colposcopy? A colposcopy or some other diagnostic step, yes. And hopefully in that situation, you'd have a clinician, specialist or family physician who's saying, I'm looking for for cancer of the cervix here. Right. Or... I'm looking to rule it out. Or to rule it out. Because yeah. there are so many other reasons for many of the symptoms that can, in the end, be due to a cervix cancer. But, you know, in, in medicine, we always think when you think of hoofbeats, you don't think of zebras. Yeah. But sometimes when there's a zebra, you have to find it and work hard to find it. Anything you want to say to Carla? I want to thank her for her advocacy. I've listened to some of her words, and I think they're very wise words. I want to say... For someone like me, in this the work that I do, I am so sorry that this has happened to her. Um, and I hope that we can minimize the chance of it happening to anyone else in the future. I think uh, she'll be glad to hear that. Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you. Following her initial round of chemo and radiation in 2018... Carla's doctors said she was in remission. Unfortunately, last month, she found out that the cancer has returned. She's back on chemo, which has helped lessen her pain. She's looking into experimental treatments in the U.S. She continues to have hope. With girls currently receiving HPV vaccinations, the rate of cervical cancer in Canada is expected to go down dramatically. The World Health Organization has said that cervical cancer can be eliminated through widespread use of the HPV vaccine and HPV screening. That's our show for this week. If you or someone you know has a story to tell about cervical cancer, email us at whitecoat at cbc.ca 
I'm on Twitter at NightShiftMD, and the show is at CBC White Coat. We're also on Facebook. Our podcast is available at subscriptions.cbc.ca and wherever you obtain your podcasts. White Coat Black Art was produced this week by Amina Zoffer with help from Jeff Goods, Sujata Berry, our senior producer Donna Dingwall, and digital producer Ruby Buiza. That's medicine from my side of the gurney. I'm Brian Goldman. See you next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.